This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. I'm Sam from Motive Partners. I'm honoured to be here today with Shane Nelson, the Chief Executive of Emirates NBD, a partner of Motive Partners and someone we admire hugely. Welcome, Shane. Thank you very much. I'm not sure about honoured, but... I'm always honoured to spend time (laughs) with you, Shane. We're here today at the HM Treasury Fintech Investor Conference. This week's had a whole host of events and you've been here sampling some of what's been on offer. What have been some of your highlights? Well, I have to say the mode of opening uh, launch, right? (laughs) Uh, That was a a really good uh, event for us and got to meet a lot of really interesting people. As an investor in Motive, it is a great opportunity for us to pool resources of a bunch of banks working together to try to get some fintech uh, startups going and uh, adopting new technology within our bank itself. But I think the important thing, one of the attractive things about Motive for us is that Banks aren't good at picking technology. And I think you know, you know, Motive Partners has that UK experience, deep management experience in technology and also in the financial services space. So they give us the capacity to pick their brains, look at what is the innovation coming in the fintech world and you know, more importantly, to put it to use. And I think that's a huge benefit for the banks that are in the consortium. We don't compete against each other in different geographies and working together in collaboration and using the British best as that's the theme of the fintech conference we're, we're here today. And I think that that plays well into why we invested in, in Motive. Thanks, Shane. That's, it's a huge compliment he- hearing it from you. And part of the reason we set up the consortium model within Motive Labs was exactly for that, the global knowledge transfer. What can we take from certain markets, whether it be regulatory directives, new business models, uh, new ways of using technology uh, to get the best out of the fintech ecosystem, both for society and the economy. What are some of the initiatives in the UK that perhaps you've heard about this week and that, that you've been studying over the past few months and years that you think could be exported to other markets successfully? There's some very interesting regulatory developments, especially around open banking and data protection, how that works. I think we're a long way behind in the Middle East uh, in, in that space. And that's a pretty exciting space. It's also challenging. It's not without adversity as well mm-hmm. for the uh, incumbent banks, both in the UK and, and globally, if those sort of regulations are, are, are put in globally. Um, so I think there is some really great work that the regulators done here around sandbox, for example, testing which we're not doing at this stage in the Middle East. And I think London is a prime example as where you can actually copy. You you heard the Australian Treasurer to say they've blatantly copied a lot of what the regulators done with the sandbox here. And I think that would be a very good opportunity also for the regulators in the Middle East to to do a similar setup and really develop those sandboxes so, so that we can put in some new innovation. We have in, in the Middle East, I think, some cutting-edge technology that we're not utilising to its best. And I'll give you an example. Um, every citizen or every person that works in the UAE has an ID card. Mm-hmm. That ID card has an iris scan fingerprints. It has your passport copy. It has your education certificates, your job, your address. 
from a technology perspective, that's very powerful because the banks can actually tap that data. Why is that important? Because if you think about things like financial inclusion, one of the biggest impediments in financial inclusion is cost of compliance. Mm-hmm. And that KYC is really difficult. Well, we can tap that data immediately, which opens up a much bigger market for us. And clients that historically would not have been economic for banks um, to bank. So I think there's a lot of stuff we can do there. But in the same token, while we have that, and I can tap that data, and for example, if you haven't updated your KYC and you come to an ATM, we'll give you a warning once. And the next time you need to bring your ID card, you put mm-hmm. your ID card, we pull all that information, we download it. So we can keep that up to date. And ID cards are reissued every three years. But when it comes to when I'm doing my online banking, and therefore I could do fingerprints or IRS technology to actually have an online bank account opening, the regulations still say, I need a wet signature. I need a physical signature. In Saudi, in fact... The regulations say you must go into the branch in front of two offices to open a bank account. And they have similar ID cards that the UAE do. So I think we've got some really good technology there that we could use, Mm -hmm. but we're getting lagging regulation and allowing us to use it. You just touched upon a number of points that, well, you and I spoke about AI utilities in Davos together. You just mentioned digital identities. The global industry sandbox model is something that we're working on with Emirates NBD at the moment as part of Motive Labs, as you know, to build an environment that allows us to integrate with fintechs efficiently, leveraging the best industry standards from STET to CMA9 to the ISO standards. But the real win with it is creating a developer environment that attracts the best talent around the world so that Emirates can then leverage the best practice globally within your regions. Talent is a big, big issue everywhere. We're talking about it frequently with Brexit. How do you guys attract the best talent at Emirates? And are there things that perhaps the regulator can do to make it an even more attractive reason to be there? We're spending about $300 million over the next um, couple of years um, rebuilding our architecture and also changing the ways we work. So we're moving on to an agile development mode. And that has caused us to reevaluate our whole IT function. The way we're working now is completely different to how we built our products and services historically. That means we need a completely different caliber of people than what we had before. That is a problem. Mm. You know, trying to go and find a chief digital officer for a bank, it's not easy. And when you do find someone, they're not cheap. But that goes right through the whole hierarchy of how we hire. And it's also the challenge is, is space, right? So we've got to do it differently. We've got to also try mm. to be cool to attract that right talent. So we have to build different space, which we've, which we've done. But we'll probably lose about 50% of a managerial staff from the original a number of people we had 90 to, to where we're going now. Just because the skill sets are so different from an old architectural setup in a bank to an agile methodology as you move forward. We've been trying to attract fintechs and entrepreneurs into the UAE, but sometimes the laws themselves don't help, right? And one of the points I've been making to the regulators is we have a system in the UAE where if you bounce a check, it's a criminal offence and therefore you can be jailed, right? It's a bit like the old British debtor's prison from yeah. from, from old times. Um, 
And they have changed some of the laws around that and they have put in some bankruptcy laws, which is mm. important. But what I'm trying to get to here is that actually the whole legal environment needs to also change to enable these entrepreneurs uh, to come in. Because when you go to Silicon Valley, what do they say? One of the big things you learn about is failure, right? You learn from failure and then and then successful. But you can't fail in jail. No. That's not going to work yeah. to attract Failing twice is very hard. Yeah. So, so I think you know, also you know, the whole ecosystem has to actually facilitate those entrepreneurs. And I think you know, that's one of the things that we need in the Middle East to attract that talent that we need. There's definitely a role that banks can play in that, in promoting entrepreneurial culture internally, entrepreneurialism. And I think part of, of what we're aspiring to do with our partnership is help encourage that within your organization. And it's a shift in mindset. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. We've talked about different skill sets. You're in many different markets across the Middle East and, and North Africa. Are there any new markets you're going after? Any Any territories that you think... You can take your operations and leverage your learnings so far? We've got 70 branches in Egypt, and I think Egypt's a huge potential market with a big population. And certainly somewhere that we really want to push our digital agenda very hard. Now, we're multi-award winning digital bank for the Middle East, best digital bank in the Middle East. But trying to replicate that with regulation in Egypt is is quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So again, it's getting that pace of development in the emerging markets is not always easy when it comes to those regulations. So we've got a LiveDot, which is our millennials bank Mm -hmm. that that we built, so a digital-only bank. We'd love to just dump that straight into into Egypt, but the regulations don't allow a speedy rollout of that within Egypt. And and they don't have the same ID cards, for example, that the, the Gulf region does. So that makes it a bit more difficult also from, from the KYC perspective. But I think there's huge potential there. If you look at the market in Egypt, it's massively underpenetrated in many areas. SME lending, which the government, to be fair, in Egypt is pushing hard, is very, very small percentage of total lending. And that is you know the engine of job creation in most economies. And Egypt does have a significant problem around employment and has quite frightening demographics with, with the young population coming through. So they need job creation and SMEs are, are something we're very focused on. But, you know, the government also is, is pushing hard on. But again, the infrastructure around laws and regulations also needs tweaking. It's not just pushing the banks to do more. It's also the regulations around mortgage laws, bankruptcy laws, et cetera, that are also important to the industry. Yeah, one of the things we talk about a lot in the UK is right touch regulation, not light touch, not not too heavy. It's very hard to implement. I think you have to have a very forward-thinking regulator. I hope that some of the lessons that we've learned from the FCA and from the Monetary Authority Singapore can be taken to other markets. And the fintech bridge that was established today with Australia is definitely something that is going to help towards doing that. Do you think there's an opportunity to create a fintech bridge between the UK and and the Dubai uh, and, and other surrounding regions? I'll certainly help push it because I think from our perspective, Britain has, I think, the best best practice at this stage. We could learn a lot in the Middle East from where you've taken regulations. That right touch, I think, is an important one. And there's a massive opportunity there right across the region to improve banking. We also have a lot of, I suppose, issues around data. There's certainly a lot of regulatory pressure on where are you going to have your data warehouse. Cloud is is always a, a very touchy issue is what can you use on cloud because a lot of countries in the Middle East is certainly um, representative of that 
don't really want a lot of data going outside of the region. Maybe that's a good thing after what's happened in the last couple of days that we've seen on the news with Facebook. Data protection is also very important to the regulators and the governments themselves. And even more so, I think, to to society these days, which is exactly why GDPR has been brought around to protect the consumer. I won't take much more of your time. Just one final thought. You're speaking today uh, on the panel, sharing the wealth focusing on global innovation best practice. You've been selected alongside Ross McEwen and Shireen Kurihak as one of the leading CEOs on the innovation agenda for the work that yourself and, and the bank have done. Are there any key messages that you're going to be pushing during that panel? From our perspective at Emirates MBD, we have a catch cry, it's digitize or die, right? That's that. That's a, a no margin. There, there's no margin. And, and I think um, one of the questions is about basically friend or foes. And I think the interesting competitors coming to me, it, fintechs don't worry me as much as competitors because I think the collaboration that we're developing with fintechs is extremely valuable and I think mm-hmm. it's beneficial for not only our organization but society as a whole. The ones that scare me are the tech fins. Yeah. The big guys, the Alibabas, the the WePays, the Googles, the Facebooks. The ones that have the trust of the yeah, consumer. The, the Amazons yeah. that do have the trust of the consumers. If you look at the net promoter scores of those tech companies, they're in the 60s, 70s. That's unheard of in banking. We rank um, about 35, which is not bad on net promoter scores. But UK banks are about 15, I think, on average for the large banks. Right. Better than zero, right? Yeah. It's 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 nowhere near where these um, tech fins are, and I think they're pretty scary when you when, when you think of things like Amazon, right? And you say, okay, they've got warehouses now; they're building all over the world. SMEs are selling their products into Amazon. It's going into their warehouses. Amazon have they have a stock? They'll see what sales are going through. They'll see the cash flow. So, as an SME lending model. Actually, they'll take security over the stock, yeah. right? And they haven't paid for it yet. So as an SME lending model, it's a beautiful model because you can see the turnover of the company. You can see which inventories are turning over really well. So that sort of innovation is great for the SMEs, but it's scary for the banks. And if you see some of the payment um, aggregators like Alibaba and WePay, I mean, they are massive now. And I wonder whether or not you do want the world's payment systems being dominated by a few tech fins uh, as we go forward. And one of the reasons I find it worrying is that banking is a transmission system of taking deposits and lending for developing the economies you're in. If it's a global borderless banking, do you get that capital? Mm. Does it land in your country? It does get used in your country, which you're trying to develop. What happens when you have a crisis? Because what we've seen in most crises in Asia, when the Asian financial crisis or in the global financial crisis, foreign banks just retreated from the Middle East, for example, and in Asia, and you lost all that capital that they were putting in historically. So sometimes you need to also protect your own economies. And I think you know that's going to be the debate for the governments and the regulators and also society as we go forward. Thanks a lot, Shane. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Best of luck on the panel and thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time.
The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Motive Partners. Motive Partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by Motive Partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.